I'm Emma Woodhouse. I'm a two-time NCAA All-American, former Division I downhill skier, and host of the Barriers to Breakthroughs podcast. Each week, I'll get to interview some amazing and strong female athletes to discuss important topics in women's sports and what goes on inside the brain of an athlete. Perfectionism, recovering from injury, and bullying are just some of the many things that can defeat your spirits and ruin your confidence to perform. I know what it's like to feel hopeless, not knowing why you're not performing the way you want, and to feel alone thinking that no one could relate to what you're going through. Well, I'm here to change that. I'll bring these topics and stories to light and show you that you are not alone and that you can overcome those barriers to breakthrough. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of the Barriers to Breakthroughs podcast. I'm your host, Emma Woodhouse, and today I'm joined by marathon runner and OCD and mental health advocate, Callie Warner. Callie is a former D1 track athlete out of Rice University, where she received a national honorable mention in track. Callie now has a master's degree in social work from Baylor University, specializing in OCD. She's an author of a children's book called Anxious Annie which we get into in this episode. And to add more to her amazing life resume, she competed in the Olympic trials in 2020 in the marathon. This episode was so fun to record because I truly learned so much about OCD and I did not hold back with the questions. Callie was so open and honest about her life and athletic experiences with OCD and how those OCD behaviors really affected her performance. She gives a great description of what OCD truly is and the different subtypes of OCD. OCD is not all about perfectionism, and it is so much deeper than that, and I'm so excited for you to learn more. There was so much information and inspiration in this episode, so get ready to be educated about OCD with Callie. And before we get into the interview, if you are loving the podcast or this episode, please leave a review over on Apple Podcasts and rate this podcast on Spotify. I would love to hear your thoughts on the podcast and what you resonated with most in these chats. It would help out the podcast so much, and it would mean a lot to me. Thanks again for all of your support. Now, let's chat with Callie. All right. Well, welcome, Callie, to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. How how are you, and how's life going for you right now? You know, overall, pretty great. I would say I'm a little sore. I just um, paced the Houston Marathon. It was on Sunday. And so as a pacer, I didn't have to go, you know, my all out speed, but definitely still sore. But it's it's like a good kind of sore because we had a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> just casual marathon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you said you're a pacer, but are you still competing in marathons or? Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, well, I ran in the Olympic trials in 2020 in Atlanta and that was in the marathon. And so I, they just changed the qualifying time for the 2024 Olympics to 237. And when I qualified, you had to run under 245. So I'm going to give it a shot and and try to get a little faster so I can go one more time. Um, you know, the first time around I went, I was way too nervous. It was still a great, incredible experience, um, but my anxiety got the best of me. And so I'm hoping to just, since I'll know what to expect this time, have a little bit of a more level head. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Wow. That's amazing. That's so Thank exciting. You. 
Yeah. It's it coming was, it was up a soon. Dream come true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you can qualify, I think pretty well now. And so the, I think I'm going to try to shoot for a marathon, like October, November to see if I can get that time. Yeah. Oh my gosh. All right. So are you close to the time? Well, when I ran my first one, I ran 243. So qualifying time was 245. And I will say, I, I think I'm in better shape this time around. Um, I was a little burned out when I was training, training for it the first time. Um, I had just finished college running and kind of went straight into marathon training. And so now I took a break and I'm liking training a lot more, having a lot more fun with it, uh, just like mentally overall in a better place. And so I feel pretty good about it, but, um, I'll do my best. And if that's enough, great. And if not, it wasn't meant to be so. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you know what? Let's just dive right into your story. And I really want to start off with like when you were little and just explain how you were as an athlete, as well as the, your mental health state at that point too. Yeah. So I played sports growing up my, my whole life, but I would say that my diagnosis is obsessive compulsive disorder. And we, I really struggled with that my whole life too, from age four until, uh, I mean, it doesn't, it's not curable. Right. So I still struggle with it to this day, but it really didn't get involved in my sports performance until I, I got pretty good at one of the sports that I did. And so I would see, my parents would see little behaviors that I would do and wonder what it was. And they would say, well, well, Callie's just quirky because I didn't actually receive an OCD diagnosis until I was 21, but symptoms started at age four. So I remember like going around my house and uh, my parents would tell me like around four, I would tap my nose, just go around the house, tapping my nose. And um, then I would say, sorry, God, sorry, God, sorry, God. And there's a form of OCD called scrupulosity, which is religious-based fears. And so you fear that if you did something wrong, um, God would be mad at you or could punish you. And it, or it can be for any religious preference. So I see a lot of my own patients struggle with scrupulosity and they fear like if they're not supposed to eat pork for their religion, they'll research the ingredients over and over to make sure that there's not pork and it just becomes obsessive. And then they like limit food because they start thinking, well, there could be a trace of it here. And it, so with any type of OCD, without it being treated, the individual's world gets really small and OCD gets really big. So little things like that I would do. And the reason I would tap my nose is because I feared that if I had possibly told a lie that day, God would let my nose grow like Pinocchio. So very four-year-old type of <laughs> obsession, compulsion deal. But I played soccer for a while. Uh, and then as I got older, I continued soccer, but then got interested in volleyball, did a lot of club volleyball, thought I wanted to play volleyball in college. And I ran on the side, but we realized as I got to high school, the success was coming from the running and I'd be a lot more likely to get a college scholarship in running. So as I devoted more time to that, OCD tends to latch onto the things that you love and care about. And so that started to creep up and I didn't still didn't have a diagnosis yet. So would just um, kind of do what I needed to, to survive. I call it white knuckling, but was uh, struggling with that and, and had success in high school and was able to get a scholarship and it kind of OCD backed me into a corner in college. And that's when I finally got treatment. Yeah. And so what would you do before college in that point of like athletics? Did you have certain kind of behaviors that you would do? Yeah, maybe, maybe what I'll do is um, I'll kind of explain the different OCD subtypes and that yeah. way it, it can make it a little easier. So 
most people know about um, two subtypes of OCD. They know about contamination OCD and they know about just right OCD, right? You might hear someone say, oh, that person keeps their desk so organized. They're so OCD. Well, there is a form of OCD called just right OCD, but what they're actually describing in that is um, usually type A personality, not OCD. So the difference between the two is I might have just right OCD. And if I do, I will put all of my cans in the fridge in order, like with the label facing me. Someone with type A personality or just like some perfectionism might do the same thing. The difference is with OCD, we don't want to be doing these behaviors. We just feel like something terrible will happen if we don't. So I have to move this can or my loved one will die, or I have to move this can or I'm not going to win the race. Um, With type A personality or perfectionism, it's more of like, I just function better this way. I like it this way. So that's that's kind of the difference. And um, so that's just right. We have contamination, which we know is like the hand washing. Uh, People will take up to you know, six to eight hour showers, not be able to get out of the shower uh, because of an intrusive thought of what if I touch something dirty as I was getting out and have to wash again. There's scrupulosity, which is that religious-based form of OCD, and there's sexual and harm intrusive thoughts. And these are the ones that I think people know a lot less about because they're taboo. We're ashamed to talk about them, but the reality is they're equally as common as the other subtypes of OCD. And so we do need to talk about them and, and make them more known. So give an example of sexual harm intrusive thoughts. Um, someone might be walking down the road and I could just picture that person without their shirt on. We all have bizarre thoughts like that. People with OCD, people without OCD, but the difference is uh, we put meaning to it if we have OCD. So I could ask myself, well, why would I have a thought like that? Does that mean I don't love my husband? Or does that mean that I could act and, and do something sexual to somebody uh, go against my morals? it becomes really distressing for that person. So they fear like there's a form of OCD called uh, pedophilia OCD. And it's in line with the sexual intrusive thoughts, but it's very much how it sounds. You have this intrusive thought about a child that you don't want to be having that's against your morals. And then you obsess about it. And so um, I've had my own patients that have worked at daycares that had an intrusive thought while changing a diaper, um, which is very common, especially like women have, uh, a lot of women have postpartum OCD. So after they have a child, they'll, they can struggle with this. They might be changing their baby's diaper and this intrusive thought pop in their head of touching a baby inappropriately. And it causes them extreme distress. They can't change their baby's diaper anymore. They might resign from working at the daycare because they feel there's this extreme danger, but the reality is they're the last person that would ever do something like that. So I just want to emphasize it's completely against their morals. It's not something that we would need to worry about, but instead need to treat. So the example I always give is if I tell you right now, don't think of a pink elephant, don't think of a pink elephant, don't think of a pink elephant. What are you thinking of? Yep. So with OCD, we like hyper-focus on these intrusive thoughts that we don't want to be having. And so we try to push them away, push them away but then they just come back stronger and and take over. So harm OCD is the next one. And um, there's harm to self or harm to others. So I could be sitting by a window doing my work at a two-story building and look down and think, oh, I could jump down from here right now. Like a fleeting thought that passes through my, my mind or passes through my mind. If I don't have OCD, probably won't even notice the thought. I will probably keep answering emails, sending a text, doing whatever I'm doing. If I have harm OCD, I will 
latch onto that thought and put extra meaning, meaning what, well, why did I think a thought like that? Does that mean I want to harm myself when I'm absolutely not suicidal? And then you overanalyze. So then you start avoiding areas of high locations. You might avoid taking your medication in the morning because you worry you have intrusive thoughts about overdosing and it just gets to be about anything, right? So like sharp objects could start to be really triggering and they avoid those types of things. So individuals struggling with OCD's world gets really small and they're without treatment. And, and so they don't get to do a lot. It's really kind of like being in your own prison in your mind. And so a couple more checking insecurity is a, is a big one. So like we've all probably double checked a lock to make sure that we locked the front door or done something like that. And I want to emphasize here that a lot of, like most of us actually probably have an OCD tendency or two, but the difference in a full OCD diagnosis is this has to take like at least an hour out of your day. So on average, someone might go double check their lock and then think, okay, I know the door is locked. I know the door is locked. And then they go to bed, but then they have a thought about well, what if I unlocked it when I wasn't paying attention? And so they could be spending hours going back and forth between the door. So it can happen with like stoves, appliances, and then there's counting and checking numbers, like uh, having to do things a certain number of times because we have lucky numbers or unlucky numbers, lucky colors or unlucky colors. And this one I see a lot with sports. And so it's just can really latch on to anything that you care and love about. And I think I've, I've talked about all the different subtypes. So We've got checking and counting, harm OCD, sexual intrusive thoughts, scrupulosity, just right OCD, and contamination. And then there's health anxiety, which is when, you know, like if you have a bump on your face, you think, well, what if this is cancer? And then you might research it. You might go to the doctor over and over, check online. I think it used to be called hypochondriasis, but we've, we've since steered to health anxiety. So I know you had a, a follow-up question, but I just rambled a lot. So I'll let you jump in first. Oh my gosh. No, this is so interesting. And and just popping up a question right now is, do you think the term OCD is thrown out there really casually? And so with people who actually feel that way, like, do you think that kind of diminishes their feelings or what's your yeah. opinion about that? So because I am a clinician and I've done a lot of my own work in therapy, I know that when people say I'm so OCD, they, they just don't know, right? Like they, they just haven't had the education. And so it doesn't, necessarily bother me, but I do see it as an opportunity to educate them because it can be seen as offensive. We really are trying to put the message out there that OCD is not an adjective. It's a diagnosis. And so, I mean, even, you know, there, there's like Christmas shirts around Christmas time at Target that say, I'm so OCD, uh, obsessive Christmas decorating or, you know, something like that. Those things for people that are really struggling, because I mean, I work at a residential facility for people with severe OCD, it takes away your whole life. And so it is hard. I'm imagining for, for some people to hear that, that term thrown around so lightly, like it, like OCD is a good thing. Like someone would want to have, because it is the last thing I would ever wish on anyone. So that was a great question. Yeah. And I, I'm just, yeah. Thinking now, like, I feel like OCD is often just portrayed as perfectionism and that that's a good thing that like, oh yeah, like they like things to be in order. But I love that you just dove into all the different parts and sides of OCD because there are so many different levels and ways of 
people right. cope with it, right? Yeah. And there's a, a great website if people are listening and want to know more about the different subtypes. It's called peaceofmind.com and it's P-E-A-C-E of mind.com. And on that website, they have all of the different subtypes in like 10 different two to three minute videos about each subtype. So it's a great way to dive into the education of that more. And they have a lot of great resources for treatment and stuff on there too. Okay. Awesome. That will definitely be in the description. Awesome. Talk about what you, I guess your type of OCD specifically with, with athletics. Perfect. Yeah, I will. So I will say some people struggle with one subtype of OCD their whole life and then no other subtypes. So like someone could have contamination OCD and not have any others. For a lot of people though, OCD tends to morph. So when I was really little, I had scrupulosity and I still struggled with that kind of on and off throughout middle school and high school. But as I got older, it tended to morph more towards sexual intrusive thoughts and harm intrusive thoughts. Um, And I had a lot of just right OCD around sport performance. So I would do things like before a race, you would see some scrupulosity come up because I would have family come watch me compete. And I would think, what if I said something bad to a family member that could have offended them? And then God's not going to let me win this race. And so I would go down the line of my family that came and said, sorry, if I said something wrong, sorry, if I said something wrong, sorry, if I said something wrong. And they just kind of knew that that was how I was again, didn't have the diagnosis yet. So really didn't know why I had to do that. I just felt this extreme anxiety that I needed to relieve. And that was my way of relieving it. And then I would do Actually, in high school, my shoe tying got so bad that my coach had to tie my shoes for me before big races because I couldn't do it anymore. So I would feel like four was my lucky number. If I did things in fours, things would be good. If I did things in threes or sixes, I had worked it out in my head that six was like in the Christian Bible, the the six is replicating the, you know, a representation of the devil's number. And so I couldn't do anything in sixes. And so fours were safe. And so I would tie my shoes four times, but then I would have this intrusive thought that, well, maybe I did it wrong, or maybe I had a negative thought while I was tying my shoe. And so I started getting late to the starting line. um, And so my coach would just tie them for me. And then I would have things with like the bobby pins in my hair. I really needed, I had curly kind of wild hair. And so I needed at least like five or six bobby pins to pin them all back. So it wouldn't be in my hair, but I couldn't put six in because that was really bad. And I could only use four. So I remember like scrounging to try to get as many curls and four bobby pins as I could. And like that, that seems like a little thing, right? Like no big deal. I mean, okay. So what Callie had to use four body pins, but when you're doing that on top of 10 other compulsions, it really does start to add up and become exhausting. And I remember, Oh, like my number for, for running, you have to have a bib number. I would feel like I had to put my last Bobby or Bobby pin safety pin, um, in the right corner, like facing God so that God knew I was thinking about him. But if I did the last one facing the devil, then I would have to redo everything. So like little things like that, that I knew didn't make sense. And most people with OCD know these thoughts are irrational, but your fight or flight response activates. And so it, it kind of teases your brain or tricks your brain and thinking, well, you have to do this because you feel this way. This must be true. And so those were, were kind of some of the main ones, but the sexual intrusive thoughts and harm intrusive thoughts were like an everyday thing, not just around races. So I could, you know, once I got my license, be driving down the road and think I could just run off this road right now, like run off the bridge right now. 
not something I wanted to do, but the, the thought made me feel like I could do it or I could be a danger to others because I'm driving. And so I would call somebody or make sure that like, I wouldn't do that and distract myself. There's a really common form of OCD that most people don't know about. It's called hit and run OCD. So I guarantee like a couple people are going to be listening and, and it's going to resonate with them. And they're going to think, oh my gosh, I didn't know that that was OCD, but I totally do that. It's when you hit a bump in the road and while you're hitting that bump, you think, what if that was a person? Logically, you know, it wasn't a person, but your fight or flight response activates. And so you go back and check. And I would spend hours driving in circles, going back and checking when I just wanted to go to home and and go to sleep, but my anxiety would be up so high. So those are kind of some of the main ones I I hope make sense and I could plug in. (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh. I can only imagine you being exhausted by the end of the day. Yeah, that's a good point. It was, it's exhausting for that person, right? Because like, if you're playing a sport and you're struggling with OCD, well, you, you want to be able to build yourself up before you go compete, but you've already wasted like three fourths of your energy doing this repetitive thinking cycle in the the prison brain type of deal that um, has depleted a lot of your resources. Yeah. As you got into college, like did, did these symptoms like really, or these sides, like, did they really get worse? And like, when did you, when was the moment you knew like, okay, I need to get help with this? Yeah. Great, great question. So I was injured my freshman year at Rice. I had a stress fracture. And so I didn't compete my freshman year. I redshirted. So actually because I love running and a lot of anxiety increases around competition because I want to do well, my OCD symptoms went down my freshman year. So The triggers were less intense and didn't notice as much of it. But my sophomore year, they started to creep up again because I started having some success. My junior year, I was trying to qualify for nationals. And I remember most people, when they have like a huge trigger that onsets, you remember that day very vividly. But I just remember that the onset of this intrusive thought that scared the living daylights out of me. And my OCD cycle started spinning. And I thought I I was somehow able to qualify for nationals despite dealing with really intensive triggers. But after that, I was like, okay, if I just finish this nationals race, OCD will go away. Well, it didn't. It's like a light switch flipped off. And again, I still, I say OCD will go away. I I was thinking more of like, whatever I'm struggling with will go away because I didn't have the diagnosis yet. So the harm intrusive thoughts and yeah, I would say mainly harm intrusive thoughts got really intense and I struggled with harm to self and other thoughts. So I got to a point where I was so worried that if I like even went on campus into a bathroom by myself that I would, if someone walked in, harm them or I would harm myself. And so I I wouldn't, I was terrified to go to campus bathrooms on my own. And as a distance runner, you're supposed to drink lots of water all the time. And so I would just hold it all day long until I got home. And that was, of course, not healthy. (laughs) And and so that was a big one. Uh, I remember going up to one of my classes on the spiral staircase. And as I would go up the staircase, I would have intrusive thoughts of jumping off the staircase. And so I would smack myself against the wall as I would go up the stairs out of fear that I, I can't make my, like, I can't jump off. And I I took vitamins and I think like a face medicine, I would call my mom every time I would take those because I would have intrusive thoughts that I had taken the whole bottle. So like little things like that, that again, were adding up and I was completely exhausted from the thoughts. Uh, Driving was really hard. I I would drive back and forth if I had to drive to campus over and over and just, just was not 
able to live my life. I remember sitting in class and struggling with so many intrusive thoughts that I didn't hear anything the professor said that day. And so I, this was right before Christmas, I would say like a month before Christmas. And so I, I made it through till the end of the semester. And then I went home and my parents saw on Christmas break, how much I was struggling. So that was when I really started to get the help I need. They said, something is wrong. Um, you're not yourself. And we went to a provider. I got the diagnosis and got the right medication and treatment. And then life started to change pretty quickly. Um, I will say for that, that year, it was just a tough year because you have to kind of do so many exposure response prevention is a type of therapy that you do for OCD before you notice a difference and the medication takes a while to get in your system. So it was a tough year overall, but also life-changing, which is why I changed my own career to being an OCD therapist because it changed my life. Yeah. And were you resistant at the time with getting help? Like, was there, I'm sure there's a big stigma. I mean, Mm -hmm. definitely around mental health still today, but yeah. Were you resistant to getting that help or did you reach a point like, I can't, I can't live like this. I was pretty terrified of getting help because my, in my mind, there was another struggle that I, an intrusive thought that I had, and this is kind of a tie between health anxiety and harm intrusive thoughts. But I was so worried that I hadn't received the diagnosis yet. So I was worried that I had schizophrenia. I was taking a psychology class and diagnosing myself with every diagnosis that my professor would teach us at the time. And so I remember having this thought, like I would see a leaf fall from a tree and I would have this intrusive thought of, did I see that leaf fall from the tree or was there really even a leaf there at all? And so I I would obsess about it. I would ask someone else for reassurance on campus. Hey, did you just see that leaf fall from the tree? Which is a an OCD compulsion. And so I I thought, because I didn't even know that much about schizophrenia at the time, but I thought, okay, well, they're going to give me a diagnosis of of something like that. And that's going to be really hard for me to handle, or they're going to give me the wrong diagnosis. And then I'm going to be a danger to everyone. Not that, not at all that I'm saying schizophrenia makes people a, a danger to anyone, but I was terrified because I didn't know enough about any disorder yet. I mean, I was taking an intro to psychology class and was just completely debilitated. So yes, I was very afraid and I wouldn't have gotten treatment if it weren't for my parents saying, you have to do something. Um, because I mean, at that point, I, there was no way I would have been able to go back to college if I didn't get Christmas or if I didn't get treatment that Christmas. The medication side of things, I was even more terrified about because I was like, well, what if I take a medication and it makes everything much, much worse? Um, So now having the education and being on the other side of things, I love to be the advocate for that person that is in the shoes that I was at that time to just say, you know what, like OCD medication works and um, anxiety treatment works. And it's the a big thing about OCD is kind of like, well, what if, um, so your, your brain will say, but what if this happens? Because you want certainty. I always like give the example of if you're driving in a car, you might be going to the grocery store. And if you're thinking, if you're on your way to the grocery store, you're thinking about what I'm going to get when I get to the grocery store, you're not thinking about that 1% chance of, okay, what if I get in a car accident and I need to make sure that my life insurance is set up and all of these other things, because that would be a terrible, miserable way to live. But when you are struggling with OCD, you're living in that 1%. And so it's very painful and difficult to take the right steps unless you have the right resources and people with you along the way. Yeah. Wow. This is 
this is, I just love talking about this. I love hearing <laughs> all this new information. It's so fun. I'm glad. So yeah, after you got the treatment and th- did you say you went to therapy as well? Yeah, I, I did therapy and um, medication management. Okay, awesome. And then so through the medication and therapy, how were you able to calm your anxiety from that? Like, what were the some of the things that would help you cope with those intrusive thoughts? Yeah, so the form of therapy, the evidence-based form of therapy that we use for OCD is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy known as exposure with response prevention. And so it, it is very much of what it sounds like. You're introducing the fears that you have a little bit at a time to teach your fight or flight response that you're not actually in danger and that uh, you can handle whatever the fear is. So for example, if I have contamination OCD, I might fear that if I touch any doorknob, I could give somebody an illness or I could, I could give myself an illness if I don't wash my hands first. Well, rationally, we know that that's not accurate, right? Like the individual struggling with that form of OCD will say, I don't know why I feel this way. I see people touch doorknobs all the time, but that fight or flight response activates and it just, they can't handle it because it is so such a painful anxiety provoking thing. So they constantly wash your hands. So we might have a treatment plan where I will say, okay, how anxiety provoking would it be for you to just picture yourself touching a doorknob and then touching your face. And they might say, well, to picture it, that would be like a four or five. And then I might ask how anxiety provoking would it be for you to touch the doorknob and then touch your face? Okay. Well, that might be like a 10. And so then maybe um, just like touching a pinky to the doorknob and then touching their face might be like a six or seven. And so we, what we do is we do those lower level exposures over and over again until their fight or flight response no longer activates to it. So we might go through a script of saying, okay, I picture myself touching this doorknob and now I'm picturing myself touching my face and I'm going on about my day without washing my hands. And so they walk through that a few different times until their anxiety is no longer triggered. And then, you know, a few weeks later, we might move to the pinky touching the doorknob. But by the time they do that level 10 exposure of touching the doorknob and touching their face, it's not actually a level 10 anymore because they've done those lower level exposures over and over again until it's not triggering. So that 10 drops along with it. And so did a lot of my own exposure work with that. I remember like having to purposely only tie my shoes twice before lining up for the starting line of a race. And it was pretty terrifying. Um, but I did it and I realized, okay, you know what? Like I'm okay. I did that. And so I don't want to go back to, you know, doing a four times shoe tie because that just feeds the beast of, of OCD. Any compulsion that you do just makes it worse. Um, and so that along with medication, uh, was the great combination for me. And the the most common medication for OCD are SSRIs or SNRIs, our selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And so we know that medication alone is not enough to treat OCD. It's kind of like putting a bandaid on something. You're not, not learning the behavioral component, but the, the best form is exposure with response prevention in combination with medication. But for some people, ERP exposure response prevention alone can be enough, just not the medication alone. Okay. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is really interesting. So it's, yeah, it's the repeating of the fear basically. Right. Right. Just not flooding the person. So a little bit at a time until they they've kind of balanced and that's no longer as triggering to them. And then they can move to that next exposure. We never want to flood somebody by having them do their worst fear all at once. Cause then they would never come back to therapy. <laughs> 
Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to scare them away. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I did want to talk about you posted on your social media recently and you talked about how your heart beats this at the same rapid pace as like whether you're working out or you're having a panic attack. And so I'd really like for you to talk a little bit more about that and how that can be really maybe confusing for athletes, especially. Yeah. So, so in that post, I was talking about how, like when I have a panic attack, you know, are usually a panic attack, your heart is racing. You might be trembling or sweating, but when you run a race or compete in your sport, your, your heart also probably races. Um, and so sometimes I think we have what what's called emotional reasoning. It's like a cognitive distortion where, we think like, I feel anxious and therefore there must be something to be anxious about, or I feel guilty. And so therefore I must've done something wrong. Well, when you have an anxiety disorder, your fight or flight response is activating at all the wrong times. And so it's not a reliable source to go off of how your body is feeling. And so it takes some time, like, especially with panic disorder, we see that all the time, right. Of someone struggling with a panic attack and then they, their mind goes straight to, I must be dying but it, but it's a panic attack. They're not dying. And so we have to kind of remember that again, like with the exposure, you can teach your brain. Okay. Like I've been here before my heart, my heart has raced like this before. I know what's happening right now. Kind of speaking truth to the thoughts, because if we can identify an intrusive thought as an intrusive thought, we're going to have a lot more power over it than if we can't. So one of those first steps in therapy is being able to say, up, oh, that's one of those intrusive thoughts. Like, hello, uh, friend that I've seen here so many times before, because if we don't identify it before we know it, it's become this tiger in the room instead of just an intrusive thought. And so I hope that kind of puts it into a good perspective. But with my post, yeah, I said something about the same heartbeat that I have when I do something I love is also the same heartbeat that I have when I am dreading everything in life from a severe panic attack. Um, And so I, I put that post on there because running used to be candidly like a prison cell for me because all of my OCD symptoms would spike around races when it was supposed to be something that I loved. So I hated running because of that. And I did it because I felt like I had to, because it was paying for my college and OCD took away the love of running from me. And so once I got the appropriate treatment a little bit at a time, my love for running started to come back. And now I get to be in the driver's seat instead of OCD being in the driver's seat. And I get to do running because I love it. And it's something that I'm passionate about. And every once in a while, I might stop my watch purposely on 6.6 for my own exposure. And it's really empowering to be able to say, wow, look how far I've come and be able to do something like that. Oh, yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And I I love that you, when you're talking about your therapy sessions, how you're almost like your OCD is separate from you. Like that's not a part of you. Like that's some, that's someone else (laughs) doing that. So I love that. That's really cool. Yeah. I, you know, I go back to places sometimes now where I had a memory there when my OCD was at its worst. And I tell my patients all the time, like that should be something that you look at as empowering because they're like, oftentimes they're afraid because it was a traumatic experience for them to go back to a place where they were once struggling. But I I try to change that mindset of, wow, like I was struggling so much. I'm so grateful for where I'm at now. Um, and, And you can use that as a sense of empowerment instead of like a really scary, sad time. And also like 
although I would never wish OCD on anybody and I would love to have not struggled the way that I did at that point in my life, it has given me this incredible perspective to be able to help others. And like, I I think it built up so much resilience for me to be able to say, wow, if I could overcome that, (laughs) these next things thrown at me are, are nothing compared to that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So cool. That that's, (laughs) yeah, that is so empowering in itself. So you recently, recently published a book. It's called Anxious Annie. And I would love for you to talk about that and what really brought out the inspiration to write a book. Yeah. So I, well, when I was struggling with OCD as a kid um, and I had no idea why I was doing that, it really did make me feel very alone, very isolated and like nobody could relate. When we now have the resources to be able to tell people like that's the last thing that you are, right? So many people struggle with OCD. I mean, one in 50 people is pretty significant. And so we, we should be giving the message that you're not alone. And so that is why I decided to write Anxious Annie. It's for young kiddos. And so I don't really get into the OCD side of things, but I definitely talk about anxiety and how it can take away your love for something that you're passionate about at some time. And so it's, it's my personal story within the book. Um, I, I, even sent the illustrator like a picture of myself and they made me a cartoon version from one of the races I ran. But it's just about this runner who starts to take their sport even more seriously, right? Because somebody that like cares and is driven is already going to take their sport seriously. And so when we put anxiety on top of that, these are the the type of things that these people need to know is like, hey, it's a party out there. You do this because you love it. And no matter what, you're going to go out there and do your best. So let's take the rest of that pressure off. And so that's kind of what Annie learns to do along the journey. And um, her love for her sport starts to come back because she talks about how she has this fear that, well, if I don't win this race or if I don't do well, people are going to love me less because that was a a very real thought that I used to have uh, when I would compete is people wouldn't think the same of me. People wouldn't like me as much uh, when that wasn't the case at all. And so once she realized that there's freedom in it and she starts to reignite her love for running. That's such a great lesson. I love, I love that. It's so near and dear to your story. And I just, I love that it's in a version that, that kids will really like, like they love the pictures and they love. And so that's, that's just amazing that you, that you did that. (laughs) And and yeah, I I know you asked why I decided to do it. Well, I had always kind of wanted to, but then I knew my PhD program was starting this summer. And so I was like, I have to get this done before my program starts or it's not going to happen. So that was kind of the, the fuse that I needed to get it out there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And what was the process like with writing the book? Like, did, was it much more complicated than you expected? So, you know, the confidence actually came from a TikTok video that I watched about <laughs> how to how to publish a children's book with a budget. And oh so my God, perfect. <laughs> yeah, this person went through like step by step and and kind of just helped me realize, oh my goodness, I can do that. And so uh it was a lot easier than I had expected. I will say I learned a lot about the publishing process that when I put my second book out there, which it will be coming, probably not for a little while, um, but this is more geared towards adults. And I started it a, a, maybe a month ago. So we've got a long ways to go, but I definitely would do some things different in regards to publishing this time around. But it was a, a great experience. Like it just brought the world of athletics and anxiety so close together. And I got to meet so many people from doing it. So like I wouldn't have changed anything about it. 
That's so funny that it was from a TikTok video of all things. That's so cool. Wow. That's amazing (laughs) that they like created that content and like you were able to implement that. Utilize it. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) There are some perks of social media out there sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I have a few more questions for you. I'm so happy that you join me on this platform. And I'm just, I'm so happy that you are educating all of us. And I'm really hoping that someone out there is able to relate and just, and know that they're not alone. So I just want to say thank you for that oh, before. Of, I course. Get into it. of course. Yeah. That's why I do what I do. So you and me both. <laughs> yeah. So I want to know what are some things that you would tell your younger self knowing what you know now? To echo the first part of you're, you're not alone in this. There's nothing wrong with you and like things will get better. I think so much of my life, I, you know, I was kind of told, well, like you don't, you might need to just like learn to live with this. And when my OCD got very severe, that was a really hard thing for me to accept, but I needed to instead be told, you know what, Callie, like things are going to get better. You're, you have the, you're going to have the resources along the way. And it's not always going to be as hard as it is in this moment when I was struggling with a really severe intrusive thought or compulsion. And so I think I needed to know that there was hope and that like there were, there, there were tools that were going to help me along the way. So those are kind of the main things I think I would have stuck with. Yeah. And then also I really want to know what, so what would you say to, this might be a similar question, but what would you say to younger athletes that may be afraid of hearing the word OCD or disorder and they don't want to think that something is wrong with them, what would you say to them? Yeah, I, I would say, because this definitely happens to some of the patients that I see now, um, it, it is a hard thing to know that you have a, a certain diagnosis. But I will say, despite the pain that OCD has brought you, you are going to be one of the most resilient and empathetic people out there because it gives you this perspective that others can't have. And so that's going to help you help others along the way that need to hear the message. Um, And also that like you can function and you can achieve all the things you want to in life with a diagnosis of OCD. Um, So don't let it feel like it's going to be something that holds you back. You just have to learn to utilize the the tools that can be given to you in the appropriate way. Yay. Oh, I love that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What are your goals um, now in terms of OCD awareness? And what else are you planning on creating on top of another book? The part of the reason I went back for my PhD is because I wanted a larger advocacy platform. And I know um, having a PhD would help me do that. So I currently am still seeing patients on the side. I really have a huge passion of working with athletes. And so I do hope to be able to advocate or like not advertise. I think that's the wrong word, but, um, advocate more for treatment for athletes specifically struggling with OCD and related anxiety disorders, like specific phobia or social anxiety, because they're kind of all treated with similar, um, ERP tools. And so just some, I don't know what the resource will look like, but providing some type of resource for the athletes that are struggling, um, is definitely somewhere along the years coming up. Yay. That's so exciting. And I'm, I'm so excited to see everything that you create, create. And yeah, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. And I just 
I love learning all these new things and I, it's just going to be so cool for people to listen to this. So thank you so much. (laughs) Of course, of course. It was a a pleasure to be on. And, um, for those listening, if you have more questions about what I, I spoke about, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Yeah. So yeah. Where else can people contact you? Um, yeah. So Instagram. Yeah. What else? So Instagram is, uh, at Callie Roper Werner, W E R N E R. And my, I work at McLean OCD Institute at Houston. And so we have a website and you can reach out to us through that and they'll give you my, my office line and all of those things as well. Um, but I'm pretty active on social media. So don't hesitate to reach out if you have any type of questions there. And yeah, we'll, we'll just go through, through that way. Awesome. Yay. Thank you so much, Callie. Of course. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Barriers to Breakthroughs podcast. If you love this episode or want to support the podcast, please click on that subscribe button and leave a rating and review. I would be forever grateful. You can also follow and connect with me on Instagram at Barriers to Breakthroughs podcast and on my website at emmawoodhouse.ca. Thanks again for tuning in and keep on breaking those barriers to your inevitable breakthrough.